more than just inviting you to John 1, I I do that. I I invite you to come and see for yourself the saving beauty of the Lord Jesus. I invite you to Him, just as Philip in our passage invites his friend Nathaniel to quote, come and see Jesus for Himself. So I joyfully invite you. In this passage, John 1, verses 43 to 51, Jesus gains two more followers. And this was written many years ago, but I wonder how many more followers He's going to gain today. In our passage, He gains Philip and Nathaniel. He captures their hearts and reveals His saving sufficiency to them. And what's revealed in this passage to these two men, Philip and Nathaniel, is nothing short of absolutely stunning. I know preachers are supposed to talk like that. But my prayer has been that you and I both would feel the stunning wonder of Christ afresh. This passage, the last paragraph of chapter 1, is written for the very same reason every other paragraph in John's Gospel is written. So that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in His name. That's what John tells us he wrote every sentence for in chapter 20, verse 31. And if you understand this passage, I pray that we will, If we understand this passage, but yet do not believe and live, then we will have missed the point entirely. So upon seeing the God-man for who He is, both Philip and Nathaniel immediately had a response to Jesus. So before we even read the passage, I want to state Captain Obvious. If you encounter the real Jesus in this moment, You may not remember one point from the sermon. In fact, I don't care if we remember any points from any sermons. But I know this. If we encounter the real Jesus by faith right now, the effect will last on Tuesday and next year and next decade. So our friend Spurgeon said to his congregation when people came to him after the service and said, Brother Spurgeon, I believe that the Lord saved me today. Spurgeon would commonly reply something to this effect. If that is still not your testimony ten years from now, then you got nothing here today. Upon seeing the real Jesus, encountering Him by faith, Philip and Nathaniel did something. What did they do? They had an irresistible response like the mist that comes up from the plunging waterfall can't help but rise back So also, when Philip and Nathaniel encountered the real Jesus by faith, they immediately yielded their entire selves to Him. Are you withholding anything from Christ? Let's not play games and pretend. Do you dictate how far He can come and no further? There was no other option for Philip and Nathaniel for they realized, let me use their words, that this man with whom they conversed on the streets of Galilee in the city of Bethsaida, was, quote, not only from Nazareth, not only Joseph's son, but the one about whom the entire Old Testament was written. 1,500 years before Jesus was born, Philip says to his friend Nathaniel, Moses was writing about Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Philip says to Nathaniel, all the prophets were writing about Jesus. As this passage so powerfully reveals, the Lord Jesus is, and oh how I pray that we would see Him, that we would believe Him. He is the true rabbi. Do you know how a person would respond to a rabbi in the first century? To follow a rabbi, you are at minimum devoting 120,000 hours to this person's influence and instruction in your life. In this passage, these two men say, you are the true Israel. You are the Son of God. 
You are the king of Israel. You are the only mediator between God and men. And as Jesus will say of himself, he's the son of man. All that is in this little passage. So my prayer for today is that those among us who have never yet known Christ, and let's not pretend, if you can't bow the knee to Jesus in this room, I can't think of a safer place on planet earth where you could follow him. The whole reason we're here is because we want every last one of you, young and old, boys and girls, men and women, to truly know Christ. So for those who've never yet known Him, or as I confessed, for many of us who have grown numb to Him, that we would see in Christ today, now, afresh, what the Spirit revealed to them through Jesus, uh, to them, Philip and Nathaniel, through Jesus. Well, with that in mind, John chapter 1, verse 43. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear God talk to you. (laughs) The next day, He, that's Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee. And He found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, that's answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Word of the Lord. O Father, We just have a few moments here. Our minds are going to be so tempted to go all over the universe and every possible place except this passage. So by the Spirit, arrest us and show us the face of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to engage with today's text, we're just going to take the play that unfolds in front of us, the drama, and it has three acts. It's Jesus' encounter with Philip, Philip's encounter with Nathanael, and Jesus' encounter with Nathanael. So Jesus and Philip, Philip and Nathanael, Jesus and Nathanael. That's Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 of what we get in this passage. In each of those three encounters, something stunningly wonderful about Jesus is revealed. Both of these men, Philip and Nathanael, instantaneously like an iceberg pressed up against the inferno of the sun, melted. (laughs) Like the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 when she traveled all that distance from North Africa to see the fame and wisdom of Solomon. And she said, behold, half was not told to me. And we're told her breath was taken away. Philip and Nathaniel standing before Christ instantaneously melt before the beauty and wonder of Christ. And while astonishing realities are no doubt revealed about the Lord Jesus in this passage and to those men, the passage ends with a larger crescendo. It's a drum roll and a cymbal smash where Jesus says, you think that's wonderful? You're going to see greater things than these. What could be greater than, quote, The man about whom the entire Bible is written, the omniscient God, 
the rabbi, the son of God, the king of Israel, and the son of man standing in front of you having a conversation. That's why today's sermon title is Greater Things Than These. Well, act number one, point number one, the encounter between Jesus and Philip. Let your eyes fall again on verse 43. It's worth reading again carefully. Here's the encounter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So, the next day, we're told this entire encounter happens. Well, before we go into the encounter, let's make sure we understand the next day. That phrase at the beginning of verse 43. As we've seen in our previous sermons in this chapter, John the writer is setting up the opening of his gospel in parallel to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. So as in Genesis 1 and 2, the account of creation, there are seven days. In John 1 and 2, there are also seven days. In verse 29 of John 1, you get the next day, which obviously means that prior to that, there was a day. So that's days 1 and 2, verse 29. Verse 35, the next day, that equals day 3. Verse 43, our passage, the next day, that equals day 4. And if you go into chapter 2, verse 1, you will see on the next day, uh, pardon me, on the third day, so if you add 3 to 4, that equals 7. So there's the first seven days. Chapters 1 through 2.11 are one calendar week. It's the creator of Genesis 1 and 2 who spoke creation into existence, now walking the streets of Galilee, speaking new creation into existence. Just as John begins his gospel with the truth in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is the eternal Logos, in the beginning was the Word, he has ever existed with the Father from endless eternities. He was with God. He Himself is God. The Word was God. And John 1.3, He is the One through whom the triune created everything that exists. John 1.3. John proceeds, as I've just tried to show in chapter 1, that the very same Creator of Genesis 1 and 2 is the One that you're looking at at the end of this chapter in the passage before us. The one who walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is now walking the streets of Galilee recreating sinful, fallen, lost, hell-bound men and women into not the image of God, but the Imago Christi, the image of Christ being restored in them. He's providing salvation for His people. The Creator is the Redeemer. Now notice the particulars that were told about this encounter between Jesus and Philip. It's two verses long, but it contains no less than four aspects of that encounter. Jesus' encounter with Philip. First, we're told in verse 43 that Jesus determined or decided. So one is Jesus determined to go to Philip's area. He was hunting Philip. Philip was in Jesus' crosshairs. Jesus was going after him even when Philip had no clue that Jesus was on His way. The word in verse 43, Jesus decided or purposed to go into Galilee is literally, I will, I wish, I desire. It's a statement of intent, but also a statement of want. I want to go to Galilee. Why did He want to go there? It wasn't a destination city, FYI. It wasn't an all-inclusive resort in Galilee. It was an object of God's infinite love there. And Jesus was on His way to capture Him. Jesus goes on purpose. That's the word. It's an on purpose word. He went there because He had a particular purpose in doing so. And the next phrase tells us what that purpose was, which is the second aspect of Jesus' encounter with Philip. Verse 43, Jesus found Philip. Jesus is the actor. Philip is the recipient. He found him. 
Who knows how many people were walking the streets of Galilee, city of Bethsaida that day. But Jesus was on a mission to find Philip. He was looking for him. I believe with all my heart that the dear Holy Spirit is traipsing up and down the little avenues of this auditorium today. And He's hunting down the hearts of someone. Philip is a Greek name. We probably don't need to make too much of that because no doubt there were Jewish families that would have used the name Philip at the time. But there is also in this name, Philip, a clue that Jesus is strategically selecting a diverse group of people to be His own. His disciples. Philip is one of the twelve His name means lover of horses. I take that to mean he's a simple country boy. He likes the outdoors. Bethsaida is a fishing community, so he's probably outdoorsy, earning his livelihood through fishing, riding horses in his leisure time. Several commentaries point out that the material we have about Philip in Scripture leads us to suppose that he was not very, a very impressive man. No noticeable leadership or oratory skills. So Jesus determined to go to Galilee and he found Philip. Number three under this encounter, Jesus calls him. He invites him. Look at those two little words. Follow me. Philip is the only disciple, as it turns out, in John's entire Gospel, who is said to have been called by Jesus. Now certainly others were called directly by Jesus, and the synoptics tell us so. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls Peter. But in John's Gospel, Philip is the only one that we're told to have been directly called by Jesus. Very little is known about this man. Told you the meaning of his name, lover of horses. He only appears three more times in John's Gospel. Chapter 6, 12, and 14. In chapter 6, he's the one saying, Jesus, <laughs> I don't know where we're going to get food to feed all these people. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of food wouldn't be enough to feed them all. That's one example we have of Philip. The only other two times we find him in the Gospel besides this moment is in chapter 12 where some Greeks are at the feast and they're looking for Jesus and they come to Philip. Hey, where's Jesus? And Jesus goes to Andrew and gets some counsel before they bring them to Christ. And then chapter 14, Philip is the one speaking on behalf of the apostles saying, show us the Father. Now this word, follow me. We can tell by the other examples, chapter 6, 12, and 14, that Philip did that. He followed Jesus. But before I even go into the impregnated meaning of follow me, let me ask you, is that the way you would be accurately described? Are you a Christ follower? Not did you make a decision three years ago or pray a prayer 15 years ago. I'm asking right now, are you a Christ follower? The impregnated meaning, it's an active word in verse 43. Keep on following me. One lexical range of that word is walk this path together with me. Come with me. And then finally, number four on this encounter, Philip's background. John adds a biographical note, a little geographical note, that verse 44, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. I've already mentioned Bethsaida was probably a little small fishing community. It was east of the Jordan River. It was near the Sea of Galilee. The name of Bethsaida, literally translated, means house of fishing. So, Philip was probably by trade a fisherman, as was his family, just like Andrew and Peter were, who were from this city. We know that they later moved to Capernaum. That's where Peter's mother-in-law's house was and where Peter apparently hailed from. But I think part of the reason that John includes from Bethsaida, from the city of Andrew and Peter was twofold. One, to support the historical reliability of what he's writing. What I mean is, when John wrote this some 30, 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he wanted anybody to be able to go ask anybody, is this true? And so he includes some accuracy. This is where Jesus called Philip. 
Why don't you just go back to Bethsaida and ask anybody there if they happen the way I'm writing it. So historical reliability. But second, to underscore for all of John's readers that Jesus isn't always seeking people of great influence. Still today, Jesus is seeking out people from every station of life. And you may think, man, yeah, Jesus is, is, is probably working in the life of so-and-so because they're somebody, but Jesus wouldn't want somebody like me. But He's still today, just like He did with Philip, calling people from every sector of society. He is intent, the Lord Jesus is, on displaying His infinite heart of love. He is especially calling, I would say, the Philips of this world. Not exclusively, but especially. Where we put prominence on people of stature, the kingdom doesn't work that way. I say He's not only calling the Phillips of the world, He's especially calling the Phillips of this world. I wonder if you would be comfortable praying this kind of prayer with me. It's the way I prayed this morning for Grace Church. God, would You make us the kind of church that gets all the people that nobody else wants? Would you be comfortable like that? Or are we the church in the book of James that the Lord rebukes, showing favoritism to the people who dress nice and wear all the nice jewelry, but the dirty, ratted, tattered clothing people, we'll just stick them off in a corner somewhere. Partiality and favoritism. The reason I say Jesus not only but especially is calling the Phillips of this world is because there's actually verses in the Bible that give us that indication. 1 Corinthians 1.26 Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Some of the nobility of church history have written that they were saved by the letter M. It doesn't say not any noble, not many noble. He's mainly calling the people that it looks like nobody else wants. Here's an application before we go to Act 2. Jesus' encounter with Philip. The Lord Jesus right here, right now, and everywhere that He's at work in the world is still determining, still purposing to search out the hearts of people today. He is still on the offense. He is still hunting down people today. He is still finding lost sheep, verse 43, and calling them to follow Him. Come walk this path with Me. That's what Jesus is saying to you today. He's hunting your heart right now. That leads us to the second act, the second encounter. Jesus, incidentally, is not involved in it. It's between Philip and Nathaniel. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, follow me, and Philip turns the other direction? But that's what faithful following looks like. Many of you could finish this verse. I'm not, not going to ask you to do it aloud, but go ahead and finish it in your mind if you know it. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus says those same two words, follow me, He explains it. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What's one of the great evidences that you're walking the path with Christ? You're constantly looking for others who you can bring to Christ. You're throwing your net constantly trying to draw others into Christ. Evangelism is not a program that Christian people do from time to time. It's not something that we pay church leaders to do. It's part and par parcel of walking with Jesus. Now, that phrase, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, like any good sandwich, the meat is in the middle. Follow me, fishers of men. You may not be good at that. Okay, just follow Jesus and He'll make you that. He will transform you into that. And Philip is... A beautiful example. The encounter between Philip and Nathaniel. Verse 45 and 46, let your eyes fall there again. Philip found, same word, found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Several aspects to this encounter. I see five. First, Philip found Nathaniel. As I mentioned, it's the same word or root word of Jesus finding Philip. Now Philip's doing what Jesus did. He's going to find his friends. Bring them to Christ. Such a strong pattern in Scripture, isn't it? If, if we're not bothered when we read the Bible, let's just reread it. Because... 
in Scripture, almost without exception, when Jesus brings somebody to Himself, they instantly want everybody else to come to Him too. The newborn baby believers in the city of Thessalonica, they only had the imminent Apostle Paul with them for four weeks. He was with them for four Sabbaths. One month. But they heard and received and believed the true Gospel. And when those Thessalonians met Jesus and Paul left town, guess what happened? Quote, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they all report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And everybody's saying, quote, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You are waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. We could look at those kind of examples for the rest of our time today. The pattern in Scripture is that when Jesus finds people, those people find other people and bring them to Jesus. Just like in last week's passage, we see again a pattern where one of Jesus' followers is finding an earthly friend or family member and bringing them to Jesus. In last week's sermon text, it was in verse 40-42. to Where at the end of verse 40, Andrew who is Simon Peter's brother, verse 41, found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Right here in our passage, the same thing is happening. Now I'm going to ask you to indulge me for just a moment. I'm not going to talk to everybody. I'm just going to talk to a a select group for for just a moment. It can apply to anybody else, but I have a little in-house moment conversation that we need to have in light of passages like this. I just want to speak for just just a moment to the members of Grace Church. Every one of us, when we joined this congregation, took basically the same pathway. We wrote out our testimony. We met with some of the pastors. We sought the Lord about it. We were presented in front of the congregation. The whole church voted to bring us in. The reason I'm reminding you about that is because when you read out your testimony on that little, little form we use, it's called Member Introduction Form. It starts the process of moving toward church membership here at Grace. On that form, every one of us wrote the names of five lost people with whom we're connected. Why? Because there's nobody better than you and nobody better than me to reach the lost friends in our lives. New believers are the best evangelists. The problem with new believers is not how new they are. It's how conditioned they get by older believers. And isn't it a shame that when new believers are so zealous to bring all their friends to Christ, all that needs to happen to stifle that zeal is to spend some time with some more mature believers. What a shame. May God resurrect among us an aggressive evangelism. And if that word scares you, evangelism, may God resurrect among us again, commending Him whom we cherish. Can I just remind you that everybody's an evangelist? All lost people, all saved people. We're all evangelists. We're all talking about what we love. Evangelism is basically commending Him whom we cherish. And when Philip was united to Christ, I believe the passage doesn't say it. I think he was saved. When Philip was united to Christ by faith, I do think Nathaniel got saved, and I do think the passage says it. Jesus says, do you believe? He's not questioning, he's affirming. When Philip and Nathaniel got saved, they just start telling people about Jesus. I want to say to you, we're living in a time where so many people have so much despair, so much darkness, so much hopelessness. Yes, Tuesday is election day in our country. I just like to believe that God is ripening our land for a mighty move of the Spirit. I mean, teenagers are in despair and cities are burning and cultural unrest and ethnic animosity and political turmoil. It just seems like a ripe occasion for hopeless people to be told about an all-satisfying Savior. 
We don't know anything about Nathaniel other than this passage. Except John 21, where we're told after the, resur- after the death of Jesus, he goes fishing with some of the other apostles. In chapter 21, verse 2. I agree with a lot who suppose that Nathaniel is the same guy as Bartholomew. Nathaniel's name's not listed in any of the other accounts of Jesus' disciples, but his name is listed immediately after Thomas' name in John 21.2 and in Acts 1.13. And many, as I said, suppose that Nathaniel's the same person as Bartholomew. Nathaniel's name means God has given. Bartholomew's name means son of Ptolemy, which is not a name. It's Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of so-and-so. Bartholomew is not a name. It's a designation. You are Ptolemy's son. And many suspect Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. And that's going to, I think, relate to this passage in just a moment. The second part of Philip's encounter with Nathaniel, not only did he find him, but he proclaims two truths about Jesus to him. Number two, under this, the first thing he proclaims is the messianic deity of Jesus of Nazareth. He tells his friend, how how astonishing would this be? The entirety of the Old Testament is written by the man that you can't see from where you're now sitting under this fig tree, but if you'll just stand up and walk with me about 500 paces, I'm going to introduce you to a person from Nazareth. He's Joseph's boy. You might have heard of him. They work in a carpenter shop in Nazareth. He's the one about whom the entire Old Testament is written. It's the first thing he said. We found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. Joseph's son. In last week's sermon text, Andrew says precisely the same thing to Peter. It's in verse 41. He's the Messiah. Peter, the Christ. Let me take you to him. Westcott said, He's a Greek scholar, translator, said the phrase, we have found, seems to imply that Philip and Nathaniel were the type of people who had often dwelt on the Old Testament, quote, portraiture of the Messiah. Have you so recognized the Lord Jesus as the main subject of the entire Old Testament, as your Messiah, as your Christ, as your Savior? I have some really, really good news for you this morning. The Bible's not about you! about Jesus. That phrase sitting under the fig tree is probably a shorthand for religious people used in that day to refer to what we would refer to when we say our prayer closet, our tent of meeting. Sitting under the fig tree, Nathaniel's probably over there thinking about some of the Old Testament concepts of the Messiah. He's in his prayer closet. Number three in this encounter between Philip and Nathaniel, he not only tells to Nathanael the messianic deity of Jesus of Nazareth, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he also proclaims the true humanity of Jesus. Look at it in verse 45. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth. When Philip is talking to Nathanael under the shade of that fig tree, Philip knew and Philip knew that Nathanael knew that Jesus, Jesus, was from Nazareth. Philip knew, and Philip knew that Nathaniel knew, that Jesus is a Nazarene, Joseph's boy, and probably well aware that they were carpenters by trade, not successful fishermen from Bethsaida. When he says in verse 45, he's the son of Joseph, I believe this is taken, is to be taken as one of John's many, many ironies in the Gospel of John. It's just so full of irony. One writer, P. 
T.D. Duke, who wrote a book called Irony in the Fourth Gospel, said, Irony is so crucial to the Johannine message that it may be fairly said that if we do not grasp the irony, we will not understand the Gospel at all. What's the irony in Son of Joseph? He's not Joseph's son. But John writes it and just lets it stand. There's all kind of irony like that. Let me, before I go into that little phrase, not Joseph's son, give you an example of many of the ironies that are in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is on trial, John the writer portrays the crowd beholding just a mere man. But when Pilate emerges with Jesus wearing a purple robe and crown of thorns, Pilate says, behold, definite article, the man. Another example is when the crowd saw a man of flesh walking around the streets of Palestine and Galilee, John the writer saw the glory of God robed in human flesh, John 1.14. Another example, when the Jewish people of Jesus' world never recognized him, he came to his own and his own did not recognize him. John tells us, the writer, that Jesus made both the people who failed to recognize him as well as the planet on which they walked. He came to Israel, his chosen people, and they rejected him, but he was their chosen prince. At the cross, they sought to shame Jesus by lifting Him up to die. And in the process, God was exalting Jesus to the highest place in the universe. The outcast and accursed beheld Jesus die and He made one of them God's child and His forever friend. Today you'll be with me in paradise. There's irony all over the book. Here's one of them. Son of Joseph. Jesus is virgin born. Joseph had nothing to do with His existence except by way of adoption to be the earthly father entrusted with the care of his own Redeemer. The fourth aspect of Nathaniel's encounter with Philip, Philip's with Nathaniel, is that Nathaniel responded with skepticism. I do not take this phrase, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, to be the kind of derogatory sarcasm that it's often read with. There's no indication in the Bible or outside of it from literature from this time, that Nazareth was held in disrepute from other people of the region. The only thing we're told about Nathaniel other than this passage in the entire Gospel of John is in chapter 21, and that is he's from Cana, which is a neighboring area to Bethsaida, Nazareth, and so forth. So it probably is embedded with some of that competitive, hey man, I'm from Uptown, you're from Smoky City, you're from North Memphis. It, it's kind of that kind of competitive stuff. But he's a man we know who is somewhat acquainted with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah sitting under a fig tree, probably meditating on the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. But when Philip talks to him, it presupposes that Nathaniel knows what he's talking about. And so Nathaniel would have known that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So it's probably more of the, wait a minute, you're telling me the whole Bible's about him, but he's from Nazareth. Either way, instead of engaging Nathaniel's rebuttal, for all the people like me who feel like you're not good at evangelism, and you chicken out every time you're ready and about to tell somebody about Jesus, oh, what a good friend Philip is to us. He doesn't engage Nathaniel's statement. He just says, come to Jesus. Talk to him. Ask him if he is who I'm telling you he is. Philip wisely, this is fifth, avoids discussion and invites Nathaniel to Jesus. Verse 46, come and see. From last week's passage, we saw the same pattern Andrew invited his friend, who was one of John the Baptist's disciples, probably John the writer of this Gospel, come and see, verse 39. Here Philip tells, verse 46, Nathaniel, come and see. Friends, this is the essence of evangelism. Newsflash, you're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom. So if you got your polished up Gospel presentation, you're still not polished enough to persuade anybody to come to Christ. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
On the other hand, you may stumble and fumble and bumble all over yourself, but if you give the real gospel, the Holy Spirit can use that to regenerate your friend's heart. Just come and see. Telling someone about Jesus is vitally important. Inviting them to talk to Jesus themselves is more important. This leads us to the third and final act, the encounter between Jesus and Nathaniel. When Philip says, come and, th- come and see, we're told in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. Does that sound like a surprising response? I mean, just in the previous breath, he's saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now he's saying, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus says, do you believe because of that? I'm going to show you something even greater than that. There's several aspects to this encounter that I want to draw attention to, four in particular. Number one, Jesus initiated the conversation. Now, Philip went to find Nathaniel, but when Nathaniel's on his way, Jesus isn't waiting on Nate. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. And then he assessed him from the inside out. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So my first observation in this encounter is that Jesus is initiating the conversation as he sees Nathanael approaching. approaching. That phrase, truly an Israelite, an Israelite truly, a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit, carries two main ideas. First, this term Israelite, it's not used anywhere else in John's Gospel, but the phrase the Jews is often used. But that little combination, a true Israelite, truly an Israelite, probably means what Romans 2 is talking about. That Jesus is saying, to quote Romans 2, He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is one of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. Jesus knew that this man was a God-fearer. He was genuinely seeking God. He had a hope for the Messiah. He's a true Israelite. Second, in whom there's no deceit is an indication that Jesus obviously knew the inward character of the man who was walking toward him with whom he had never had a conversation. The same word is used in Greek to refer to bait, in whom there's no deceit, there's no bait. Morris said that the word signifies, quote, any cunning or contrivance for deceiving or catching like a Trojan horse where you're tricking people. Nathaniel's not a deceiver. The word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis 27-35, of Jacob, the deceiver, before he had a change of heart. That same commentator, Morris, points out that a Greek scholar by the name of Temple, who translated the entire Greek New Testament into English, translated verse 47 this way, put on your listening ears. Behold, An Israelite truly in whom there is no Jacob. No what? No deception. Then you get Nathaniel's response. How do you know me? Verse 48, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That that response in verse 48, how do you know me? indicates that Jesus' assessment of Nathanael was accurate. Because somebody who is full of guile, full of deceit, full of deception, full of hypocrisy, would have said in false humility something like this. No, I'm, I'm unworthy of such a designation. Nathanael's agreeing with Jesus. The third part of this encounter... First was Jesus initiating. Second was Nathaniel's response. Third is Jesus' explanation. You want to know how I know you? 
before Philip called you. When you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Remember I told you earlier that Jesus determined to go find Philip? He does the same thing with Nathaniel. He put his crosshairs, he put his scope trained on Nathaniel, but he used Philip as his artillery to go get him. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. There's no doubt that Nathaniel is observing in Jesus omniscience. I try to preach in a way that people won't just get bored and tune me out. I'm not good at it. One commentary. It is difficult to explain Jesus' knowledge of the incident on the level of merely human knowledge. Nathaniel had never met Jesus before this moment. We are required to understand that Jesus had some knowledge not generally available to the human race. You know what that's called? Being God. John Calvin. We should also gather from this passage a useful lesson. Okay, give me some useful lessons, Calvin. That when we are not even thinking of Christ, we are always observed by Him. Nothing has ever occurred to God. He knows you inside and out. And here's some more good news for you today. It's, it's terrifyingly good news. He's only going to save the real you. Not the you that you want everybody else to think you are. He knows you. He knows you inside and out before you have a thought. He knows it. Psalm 139, He knows if you're sitting down, rising up. If you go to the furthest part of the sea, He's already there. He knows everything about you. And astonishingly, He loves you. The fourth part of this encounter, when Nathaniel is now gripped with jaw-dropping wonder that he's standing in front of the omniscient God of the universe, is Nathaniel's faith-filled reply. This is the last part of this encounter I want to draw attention to before Jesus' final comment. Nathanael's astonished, faith-filled reply. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Isn't that an amazing response to I saw you under a fig tree? You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathanael is obviously asserting his full, faith-filled embrace of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah that Philip told Nathaniel Jesus is. Remember when Philip goes over and taps Nate on the shoulder and says, that man is the one about whom the whole Bible is written. Nathaniel's now standing in front of that man saying it for himself. Nathaniel is indicating, Morris writes, here is someone who could not be described in ordinary human terms. In the case of Jesus, Nathaniel had to use terms that indicate the closest possible relationship to God. You are God's Son. You are Israel's King. William Barclay, who's a devotional commentator, some of y'all don't like that, but I do. Nathaniel capitulated forever to the man who read, understood, and satisfied his heart. Do you hear what Nathaniel says? You're the rabbi. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Rabbi is not just a respectful greeting. By the way, Nathaniel didn't greet Jesus that way. He doesn't say rabbi in his first statement. He says it after he understands he is God. And when he says it now, not initially, he's not doing respectful greeting. He's saying with substance, I want you to teach me everything. You already know me fully. You saw me when I was under the fig tree. Now I want to know you fully. Come be my master. Teach me. Second, you are the Son of God with a definite article. The Son of God. His unique Son. His John 1.18. Monogenes. His only begotten Son. 
clearly, D.A. Carson writes, Nathaniel was acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one to whom the ancient Scriptures had borne witness. I think there's a subtle emphasis going on here in the Son of God because I told you that I think Nathaniel is Bartholomew, the son of Ptolemy. That's what Bartholomew means. And if they're the same person, Bartholomew's saying to Jesus, I'm Ptolemy's son. You're God's son. You know me thoroughly. You're the omniscient one. You know who I am. My name's Nathaniel. You saw me. You know my character. I'm not a deceptive, deceiving, cunning, tricking person. And now I know who you are. You're the Son of God. But notice King of Israel. You're the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Did you notice that Nathanael's called by Jesus an Israelite in whom there is no deceit? So now, Nathanael is not essentially absolutely saying, you're my king. Yeah, if I'm one of them, then the benefit of being an Israelite is you're the king of them. And I'm so happy that you're my king. That's why I asked you earlier, do you dictate how far Jesus comes in your life and no further? If He can't have all of you, then you've never surrendered any of you. Or as Rick said Friday night to a group of pastors, as we were gathered around a meal, that old Augustine line, if you don't treasure Jesus above all, you don't treasure Jesus at all. Here's Nathaniel saying, you're the king of Israel. That's essentially, you're my king. Morris said this statement means Nathaniel is submitting fully to Jesus. Here's an application that I want to draw out before we go to the final comments from what Jesus says that is totally mind-boggling. The application before we get there is this. Most people who saw Jesus did not see in Jesus what Nathaniel saw. Jesus is just a man of lowly life, humble origins, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He didn't look like royalty. But here's Nathaniel calling him king. Majesty, royalty, potentate. That's king. You're the king of Israel. And I want to ask you, has Jesus read your mail so much so and told you about it that your only acceptable response to Him is an involuntary faith impulse back to Him to say, you are my sovereign. Have you surrendered your life to Him as your king? Final part of the passage, it's the good stuff. Verses 50 and 51. Jesus says, you think that's something? You're going to see greater things than these. What could be greater than standing face to face in the first century on a dusty path having a conversation with the God of the universe? Jesus says there's something greater than that. It's available to you right here, right now. It's the exact same greatness that three chapters after this we're going to run into with the woman at the well. Do you remember her? You said correctly you're not married. In fact, the man you're living with you're not married to. You've been married five times before that. Jesus read her mail. He knew her inside and out. And she runs back to her city and she tells everybody, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Like, who's first? Just come on, stand up here, tell all your garbage to everybody. This woman and Nathaniel both say, He knows me so fully. He knows every dark corner of my life, every regrettable moment, every sinful indulgence. He knows everything about me. And she, woman at the well, like Nathaniel, when they met the omniscient God in Christ, they didn't run the other way. They started telling everybody, you've got to come to Him as well. What could be greater than standing face to face with the omnipotent God of the universe in the first century on a street outside of Bethsaida? According to Jesus, it's verse 51. An understanding of the entire Bible 
as a Christocentric treasure trove. An understanding of the entire Bible as a Christocentric treasure trove. I don't care if you remember that point. It's got a lot of words in it. This is what I mean. Truly, truly. Jesus only uses that phrase. Jesus is the only one who uses that phrase in the Gospels. And every time he uses it, he's about to give you a punchline. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference to Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. When Jacob has a vision and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. You will see something greater than this. What will you see? What, what could be better? What could be greater than having a face-to-face conversation with Jesus and knowing that you're talking to God according to Jesus? Something greater than that is available to every one of us right now. That is seeing the glory of God in Christ by the illuminating power of the Spirit through the Spirit-inspired words of the Bible. D.A. Carson said, John clearly understands the parallel, Genesis 28-12, to be drawn between Jacob and Jesus, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I believe that John the writer is showing us a gob of the glory of God in Christ that he's about to show us in the next passage, 2, 1-11, to when he says this is the first sign Jesus did, water to wine, revealing His glory. He's revealing His glory now! That He is the true Israel. Remember Jacob's name? You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's Jacob's ladder. Remember Jacob's name? It got changed, didn't it? To Israel. I believe Jesus is saying, I'm the true Israel. Do you remember why Jacob was called Jacob? Because he's a deceiver. That's what his name means. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're not a Jacob. You're not a deceiver. You don't have that kind of character. You see what Jesus is doing right here? He's showing that he saves the Nathaniels and the Jacobs. He saves the squeaky clean people who are honest in their approach to God. And He saves the deceptive, lying, treacherous people who are always manipulating and trying to get something for nothing. Jesus is the true Jacob in whom there's no deceit. And you want to see something greater than this, Nathaniel? I'm the only mediator between God and men. I'm the only access from earth to heaven. That ladder where people converse from earth to heaven and back again, there's no other way for you to get from here to there or for God to minister you from there to here than me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only access to the Father. I'm the only mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And I save all sorts of sinners. High character sinners like Nathaniel. Deceptive, deceitful people. Low character sinners like Jacob whose name means deceiver, and I turn those people into the kind of people that God calls Himself by. This is amazing to me. When God saves us, this is amazing. He calls us by the name of His Son. He calls us Christian. He so unites us to Himself that He gives us His own name. You're a Christian now. But more astonishing is that He calls Himself by our name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. It should be Esau. But it's not. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not who they are. That's who He is. He's the God who saves deceiving, deceptive, manipulative, treacherous, dishonest people. That's who He is. And then... He throws in another passage just to give Nathaniel a little food for thought. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus refers to Himself that way dozens of times in the four Gospels. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. 
It certainly highlights his humanity. Nathaniel says, you're the son of God. Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's true. I'm also the son of man. It highlights his humanity. But if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, it highlights his universal reign and his kingly authority and that he's the coming judge who's going to deal out the retribution for all who do not obey the gospel and who's going to give endless bliss to all those who are united to God through faith in him. Graham Goldsworthy put it this way. You want to understand verse 51? Every passage of the Bible bears a discernible relationship to Jesus. And Jesus said to Nathaniel, that is greater than if you and I would have lived 2,000 years ago and got to walk the streets of Palestine and have conversations with Jesus. Greater than that is our ability to see the Son of God by faith in Scripture. That's why I say the Bible in its entirety is a Christocentric treasure trove. The day Jesus rose from the dead, He said the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are about Me and about My Gospel accomplishments. So in today's passage, greater things than these. Saving Philip by determining to go after him, hunt him down, and call him to be his follower. Employing Philip to go to get Nathaniel, to bring Nathaniel to him, to show, him, to show Nathaniel that Jesus is the Son of God and King of Israel, and the whole Bible is about himself. He's doing the same thing right now. He's hunting people down. He's coming after you. He's drawing you to himself. And John 6.44 says, no one can come to the Father uh, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent Jesus draws them. And if you've never come to Christ and you have a desire to do so today, it's not because you just had a good idea or happened to stumble into a church service. It's because Jesus is hunting you down just like He did Philip and Nathaniel. He's coming after you right now. He's calling you just like He called Philip. He's still seeking souls today. He's the God of the covenant, triune Jehovah whose marvels of mercy adoring we see. He's the seeker of souls and the counsels eternal, binding His lost ones forever to Thee. Philip and Nathaniel had a heart full of wonder, didn't they? They understood that the whole Bible was about Jesus. We found Him. Nathaniel agreed with that. He's the one about whom all of Scripture is written. But Nathaniel had to come see for himself. And it's that old Rutherford illustration that if I go off and try to spend time with God and I've tried this week I've had my own heart raptured time and again in ways that I couldn't even possibly put into a sermon note to try to say to you as I've seen Christ's glory this week but that Rutherford illustration is if I go over to the ocean and see the glory of Christ and come back and try to tell you you'll never be amazed unless you go to the ocean for yourself come see come and see and continue to see greater things than these, a lifetime, an eternity of God revealing Himself to you in Christ. The primary subject of all of God's revelation, the Savior who forever reigns as Son of God and Son of Man. He's available to you now. So let's join at His throne for just a moment as we close in real prayer. Father, we do ask that by Your Spirit, You would draw us all to the face of Christ. That You would let us see what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. You would let us see what Philip and Nathaniel saw, that Jesus is the one about whom the whole Bible's written. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He knows us inside and out. We ask God that You would cause us to yield ourselves to Him fully. No reservation, but truly following Jesus. We confess that we are the deceivers, the liars, the tricksters. We're the Phillips. We're the nobodies from nowhere with no influence. But we thank You that You don't go looking for the prominent and the influential, but to show off Your amazing grace and so that you get all the glory, you come after people like us, sinful, rebellious nobodies. And you invite us into the most fascinating relationship of all, to follow Christ. Oh, how we ask that we would walk the path of life with Him. And that you would day after day show us the gold bars that are laid right in the middle of the road of Scripture. That you would show us the glory of Christ 
places like Daniel 7 and Genesis 28, or as Philip said, everything Moses wrote, all that the prophets wrote, the entirety of the Psalms, just show us Christ over and over. Let our breath be taken away by something greater, something better than if we would have lived 2,000 years ago and had an opportunity to walk the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. Let us see Him every day in Your Word. And forgive us, God, for having a treasure trove sitting in our lap and pushing it away with disinterest. We confess that to You. And we ask that You would enliven us again by the Spirit to truly seek Your face. Do it, God. Give us Christ. Thank You for His risen victory that forgives us for every failing and unites us to You. Oh God, how I pray that any who don't know You would throw themselves truly on the mercy of Christ. Save and sanctify for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.